0: in recent days of the Great Flood of 93, bringing its devastation to thousands of families and millions of acres of cities and farmland. The staggering cost of this natural disaster will eventually affect the lives of all of us. The power of water, can you believe it? We have witnessed it again and again. Levees broken, Houses taken off their foundations and carried down rivers. Huge trees, hundreds of years old, uprooted like they were matchsticks and carried away. Whole cities brought to a standstill. The water that we drink, that we bathe in, that we play in, can become an overwhelming force of destruction and ruin. We have seen that with our own eyes. As I think of the flood of water around us, nearly overwhelming everything in its path, it becomes a parable to me about the times in which we live. Do you, as a saint of God, ever feel overwhelmed by this age with its flood of ungodliness, evil, and perversion of values? Do you feel like the cultural levees are breaking down? allowing the devastating flood of secularism and anti-Christism to obliterate the values which made our nations free and great? Do you feel like the powers of government are intended by God to punish evil and promote good are frequently being abused and perverted by unscrupulous people? Well, you may have said yes somewhere along the line to those questions. And that's why I want to talk today about stability of soul in this series of SOS messages. Stability of soul. It's easy even for God's people in circumstances like ours to feel insecure and uncertain about the future, sometimes even to abandon hope. It's important to remember that steadiness of soul does not depend upon the times, but rather upon the eternal. We who know Jesus Christ have a hope that withstands the flood of world decay and the currents of personal doubt. We read about that in our text today in Hebrews chapter 6 where I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. I hope if you have your Bible with you, and you should by all means, that you'll turn there with me to Hebrews chapter 6. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered. As a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The hope of the saints serves as an anchor for their souls. That hope is eternal salvation. The salvation that God has promised to his heirs that is, to those who are his children through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of the saints produces the steadiness of soul that we need in times like these. But on what does this hope rest? Well, in the broader paragraph of Hebrews chapter 6, it seems to me there are at least four pillars upon which our hope rests. They are the pillars of God's person, God's purpose, God's pledge, and God's priest. Those are the four pillars upon which our hope is founded. And because we have that foundation, our hope produces for us Stability of soul in turbulent times. Think with me about the first pillar, that of the person of God. Back up to verse 13 with me in this paragraph where it says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply you. And thus having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. Because of God's very nature, because of the person of God, our hope is secure. No floods in this world can possibly undermine this pillar Because this pillar rests upon the very nature of the eternal one in whom we have placed our faith. This is the pillar of God's person. In verse 18, the writer says, It is impossible for God to lie. Now why is that? It is because God is, by his very nature, truth. And therefore, everything that God says is true and trustworthy. Not one word has failed of all his good promises. He is the God who cannot lie. Therefore, he not only will keep his promises, he must. It's not just that God will do what he said he will do. He must do what he said he would. Because that is his very nature to do so. The illustration given to us in the text is that of Abraham. And the writer quotes from a repetition of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Verse 14 is a quotation from Genesis chapter 22. Now in that chapter we have the great test of Abraham's faith. When God called upon him to sacrifice his son, his only son Isaac, the son of promise. And Abraham demonstrated great faith to God in that he was willing to do that and would have done it had God not interrupted him. And pointed to the ram caught in the thicket who would serve as the substitute for Isaac. God then restated to Abraham his covenant with him. And among other things he said, I vow that I will bless you. Literally that's what God said. I vow that I will bless you. God gave to Abraham the promised seed in Isaac after many years of waiting. And then God said, sacrifice this promise. Abraham would have done it in his heart. He did do it. God honored such great faith and said, Abram, surely I will perform for you what I have promised you. God fulfilled for Abraham that promise and we see it yet today in that there's the family of Ishmael still in the world, Ishmael being the son of Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, and Abraham. The descendants of Ishmael are seen in the Arab peoples, the millions and millions of them. Furthermore, we see the family of Isaac in the world through his son Jacob, in the tribes of Israel, now regathered by God's sovereign hand to their own land, bearing the name Israel. And beyond that, we see another family of Abraham, his spiritual family, the family of faith. Those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are said in the word of God to be the sons and daughters of Abraham. Abraham. God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham because God said to him, I will make your descendants like the sand on the seashore. And today that has never been more clearly demonstrated than the millions of people who are both the physical and the spiritual descendants of Abraham. God fulfilled his word to his friend. Abraham. God always keeps his promises. What is our hope founded on? We who profess salvation by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is founded upon the very person of God who promised us eternal salvation and that hope is a pillar for our souls in the floods of a wicked world like we live in. God is a God of integrity. He keeps his word. And by way of application, of course, God calls us to be a people of integrity. People who keep our word. People who do what we say we're going to do, even if it is to our own harm and hurt. God wants us to reflect his likeness in this sense. He is the God of all truth. We are to be a people who walk in the truth. The first pillar of our hope is the pillar of God's person. The second pillar is God's purpose. Again, in verse 14, he says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you because God's purpose is to save a people for himself our souls find security we can't really find security in ourselves because we're like roller coasters and we go up and down but folks God's purpose like his person never changes God has purposed to call out a people for His name's sake. A people as a love gift for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you and I have trusted the Savior, we are counted in that number. That's God's purpose. That all of those who trust in His Son one day be with Him in glory. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden where their needs, every one of them, were cared for. Tragically, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and to do the one thing that God forbade of them, and they sinned. They were cast out of the garden, and it was not long before Cain killed his brother Abel. And then sin began to quickly multiply Until over the period of about 2,000 years, according to a chronology that I would favor, sin was so prominent throughout the population of the world that every intention of the heart of human beings was to sin. That was the pattern, that was the continuous thought and aim and desire and imagination of man's heart to sin. Therefore God purposed to send a flood to destroy mankind from the earth. So wicked had man become. But God in his grace looked down and found favor with a man named Noah. And saved him and his wife and his three sons and their wives And God in his grace continued to cry out to the rest of mankind to repent as Noah spent 120 years building that ark. And then the flood came and carried all of the rest away. Noah and his family only were saved. And yet, after that great deluge, the heart of man had not changed. And once again, through Noah and his three sons, Ham, Shem, Japheth, we see sin again multiplying and creating within the heart of Noah's descendants rebellion against God, culminating a few hundred years after the flood in the building of a ziggurat, a tower, in a place that came to be called Babel. And there in that plain of Shinar, modern day Iraq, there was an attempt on the part of humanity to build a tower up to God and to throw Him out of heaven. That man might be autonomous and independent of God. Again, God intervened. God caused the language of those people, they had all spoken the same language to this point, he caused their languages to be confused. And he drove them away from there, they scattered throughout the earth, those language groups and cultures to their own nations. And yet God did not give up. Amidst all of that chaos, all of that idolatry and all of that wickedness God looked down yet again upon the earth and just about the time that Noah finally died God said to a man named Abram who was living in Ur of the Chaldees get out to a country that I will show you now what was there in Abram that caused God to look with favor upon him nothing absolutely nothing God is just carrying out his sovereign purpose. It was his purpose since the garden to redeem a remnant of Adam's race for himself. To be restored and to rule over his new creation. And God was simply carrying out his purpose. You see, all of the wickedness and all of the sin and all of the idolatry of man cannot overcome the purpose of God. God. And God said to Abram, You come out, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your seed a blessing to all the nations of the world. Ultimately, talking about the seed which is Jesus Christ. God is going to fulfill his purpose in redemption. What does our hope rest upon? It rests upon God's purpose. That God has already ordained that there will be a remnant of humanity that will survive all of the wickedness and be taken out from it. To belong to him and to reign over the new heavens and the new earth. And dear friend of mine, if you are a child of God, you are one of those that God has already purposed will one day be glorified with Christ and will enter into what God has promised in the fullness of our redemption. We live in a day like Noah's, and not because of the rain. I've heard some of those comparisons. But we live in a day like Noah's because of the wickedness of the heart of man. And yet God in the midst of this day is calling out people for himself as he did with Noah. On what does our hope rest? God's person. He is a God who cannot lie. And God's purpose, he is determined that he will save an elect group. A remnant of Adam's race for himself. The third pillar of our hope is that of the pledge of God. It says in verse 13, God swore by himself. You understand, of course, this is not blasphemous swearing, as we sometimes use the word swear or swore. What it means here is that God took an oath. And since there is none that he could swear by greater than himself, he swore on the basis of who he is. Verse 16 says... Men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, We may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge, in laying hold of the hope set before us. And Again, that hope is our salvation. Because God has given his oath, his pledge, we can be certain of our hope. It was the custom in ancient days to declare an oath to seal a transaction. In fact, there were times when God commanded his people, according to Exodus, to give an oath so that there would be no further argument or dispute. The deal was done when the oath was made. Certainly no one made an oath unless it was a commitment that he intended to keep. It says here that God made an oath. He swore by himself that he would keep his promise to Abraham. And not only to Abraham, but to all of those who are his children by faith, and who are heirs of the promise. God swore by himself. God may be referring to that occasion when he was speaking with Abram, and after again restating and elaborating on his covenant with Abram, he put Abram to sleep. Excuse me, first of all, Abram laid out some sacrifices. This is according to one of the ways an oath was made. Certain animals were cut in two right down the middle, and they were laid half on each side of a path. Now, normally, the two people who were making an oath between each other would join hands, walk arm in arm, down through that path between the sacrifices. That was a way of establishing a permanent agreement or covenant between them. Well, in this case, after Abram had laid out the sacrifices, God put Abraham to sleep. And God himself came and walked that pathway between the sacrifices, signifying that the covenant he was making with Abraham did not depend upon Abraham at all, but solely upon God, who was giving his oath. The two unchangeable things that the writer is talking about in this verse are God's promise, confirmed by God's oath. God gave his word and then he provided an oath to signify that he would keep his promise. Now, God did not need to make an oath. His word was enough. But to reassure his heirs, he confirmed his promise with a pledge. It is interesting, if not a bit sad for me, to note that there are some who are related to God... The God who makes pledges, who themselves are afraid to make pledges and commitments to God. Nowhere does it say in the word of God that we are not to do that. It does say that it's serious when we do it. But God is a God who himself establishes things by an oath. And who swears by his own great name that he will keep his word. Let us not as the people of God back away from keeping our commitments to him. And being willing even to sign our names if need be to something to signify that we will keep our word. That is fully consistent with what God says in his word. Not only do we have God's promise, we have God's oath that he will give eternal salvation to those who trust him. And so we have the pillar of God's person, the pillar of God's purpose, the pillar of God's pledge. And by the way, that pledge for us today may be the Holy Spirit. That may be what the writer has in mind. Certainly the Spirit is called a pledge of our inheritance. God has already given us the down payment. He has signed on the line, as it were, that we will be saved by giving us His Holy Spirit. That is the pledge of our future redemption. But the fourth pillar that I want to get to before we close is the pillar of God's priest. Because we have a high priest who has entered heaven for us, we can be sure of our hope. In these verses, Jesus is called the forerunner. The forerunner is one who acts as a herald, who goes before royalty, announcing royalty's arrival, or a forerunner was one who was a scout, who would be sent out in advance of the rest of the party. In order to make adequate preparations, so that when the party arrived, all would be cared for. Can you see how that name applies to him? In fact, in my Bible, I've written a capital F on the word forerunner. Because that's a name for Jesus. He has gone before us as our great priest. He has gone before us to make preparations for our eventual arrival there. He has gone as a herald, as it were, into the Father's presence to announce our soon arrival. And it says that he has gone within the veil for us on our behalf. By the way, we can follow him wherever he goes. He's gone within the veil. You say, what does that mean? Well, if you're familiar with the figure Of the Jewish temple or tabernacle, you know that that tent, that building as it came to be, was divided into two sections. The most inner part of it, the holiest part, was behind the veil. And in the Jewish days, only the high priest could enter in behind the veil. That was where God indicated his presence by the Shekinah glory over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Now it tells us here that Jesus has entered in behind the veil. And our hope is anchored to him. Notice how he puts it. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. So he mixes the metaphors here. There's the metaphor of the temple and the holy of holies. And he mixes with that then the metaphor of a ship setting anchor in the harbor. The picture is that of a cable that stretches from the ship to its anchor where it firmly rests embedded upon the rock. In our case, he says that the cable goes out from our souls as it were... And stretches all the way to heaven. And it disappears behind the veil. And is anchored into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This anchor of our souls is just as secure as is our priest. This anchor will keep us from drifting away into condemnation with the rest of the world. fourth pillar for our souls is the priest of God. How do I know that God will keep his word? What causes my hope to be steadfast when we live in a world of floods that rush against our souls? It is that we have a priest who stands in the presence of God on our behalf. This morning there may be perilous waters that are swirling at your feet, threatening to undermine your life, threatening your faith, making you anxious about the promises of God. I want to encourage you this morning, despite the rushing waters that may be about your life, if you are a child of God, your soul is secure. That hope that you have rests upon pillars that can never be undermined or eroded. If you are a saint of God, there is a security for you that locks you safe to God himself. All the more reason then for us to abandon our self-reliance and to cease our self-service and to be diligent in our service to Jesus Christ. There may be someone here today whose hope is not resting on these pillars. Perhaps your hope is resting upon your church membership, or baptism, or some ritual you've been through. Or the faith that your grandmother had. Or the home that you were raised in. Let me tell you that the only pillars that cause your hope to be secure are the pillars we've talked about this morning. And they can be yours if you will trust in Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior. If you are a child of God and you are frightened because of the mass of waters that have come into your life this week or in recent weeks, and you are anxious and you are worried about what's happening And you're beginning to doubt, is my hope going to be secure? Am I going to be steadfast? I'd love the opportunity to pray with you. And when this service is over, I'm going to be up here shaking hands for a few moments. But if you'll just wait around a few minutes, I would love to have a time of personal prayer with you and others who may come. Who are today deeply burdened about the floods that are coursing their ways through your life today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have an anchor that holds in the storms of life. When the doubts unfurl their winds of strife, we have an anchor that holds. I pray today for your children who, passing through a flood are anxious and threatened and worried. I pray that you will come alongside of them this very day to reassure them that you, their sovereign God, are in charge, that the flood will not overtake their faith, that their hope rests secure upon your person, your purpose, your pledge, your priest. In Jesus' name, amen.